If you have a copy of God's Word, please turn to the Gospel of John. Gospel of John, in chapter 20. Gospel of John, chapter 20, and we'll read together this morning, verses 19 through 23. John, chapter 20, verses 19 through 23. I'll remind you that Jesus has been crucified, He's been buried, He's now risen from the dead. Peter and John have seen the empty tomb. Uh, Mary has witnessed and seen the resurrected Lord. And now we arrive at John 20, verses 19 through 23. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Let me ask that we pray once more. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we pray that by your Spirit, in these moments, you would please help us. For Jesus' sake, amen. Verse 19, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, let me ask you to think about what you were doing on Thursday. What were you doing on Thursday, this previous week? You have it in your mind, what you were doing on Thursday. This will help us understand something of the chronology, the, the timeline we've been working with in recent weeks. In, in this narrative, it was Thursday of that week that the disciples had been in the upper room with Jesus at the Last Supper. All that wonderful material, beginning in John 13, where, where Jesus, where it's said of Jesus, excuse me, that having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The account of Jesus washing the disciples' feet, the new commandment that he gives to his disciples, that they're to love one another as Christ has loved them, thereby proving they're Jesus' disciples. The material in John 14, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, where he promises the Holy Spirit. John 15, where Jesus says, I am the true vine. He instructs believers to abide in him, to draw their life from him, and to love him and keep his commandments. John 16, where again the Holy Spirit is promised, and suffering and hardship are anticipated, and yet the promise that the disciples will know joy that cannot be taken away from them. John 17, the high priestly prayer recorded for us, Jesus' prayer to his Father. That's all Thursday night. Then Jesus goes out with his disciples, and that evening he is betrayed by Judas, and he's arrested. Thursday night into Friday morning, we have Jesus' two trials, his trial before the high priest, his trial before Pilate. We believe it's roughly at 9 a.m. on Friday morning that the crucifixion begins. From 9 a.m. to about 3 in the afternoon, from 12 to 3, darkness descends, 
covers the land. And around 3 p.m. in the afternoon on Friday, Jesus breathes his last, gives up his spirit. And then for a part of three days, Friday, afternoon, evening, all day Saturday, Sunday morning, Jesus is in the tomb. He's in the grave. And of course, Sunday morning, Jesus rises from the dead. And it's then that Mary goes down to the tomb. She sees the door is removed. She's afraid they've taken the Lord away. They don't know where they've laid him. Peter and John run down to the tomb. They see that the tomb is empty. At least John makes the connection that Jesus is risen. For as yet, they had not understood the scriptures that the Christ must rise from the dead. And then they return back to their homes. And then Mary comes again to the tomb, or at least maybe she's still been there. She's there in the garden weeping. And she sees the Lord, and the Lord reveals wonderful things to her and instructs her to go back to the disciples and tell them about what she has seen. That's all Sunday morning, probably, I don't know, about this time on Sunday morning. And then we get to our verses today. We're at the evening of the first day of the week. So you have a sense of the chronology, where we are at this point in the narrative. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. So so though Peter and John had seen the empty tomb, and and though Mary had come to them with the report that, that, that I have seen the Lord and shared with them, we believe those words that Jesus had given to her to share that the Lord's ascending to his Father and their Father, his God and and their God. Though all that's true. Apparently, there was still some degree of fear still present in these disciples, some degree of anxiety, some degree of tension. They're behind locked doors, and we read that it's for for fear of the Jews. They're not out looking for the risen Christ. They're behind locked doors with some degree of fear and trepidation. So on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, doors are locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. I assume John is is trying to highlight the point that the doors were locked, no one could get in, and yet Jesus stood among them. I I don't know if, I suppose he just materialized in the room, walked through the wall or something like that, in his resurrected body, resurrected state, there were certain qualities to that body whereby Jesus could make his way through a locked door, I don't know, but the door was locked, somehow Jesus appears to them and stands in their midst, and he says to them, peace be with you. Uh, shalom, as the Jews would say. Uh, This could be read as just a customary greeting. Jews greeting one another in those days, it wouldn't have been unusual to say shalom, shalom to you. Peace, Peace be with you, also with you. It was the customary greeting of the Jews. But surely, surely, beyond any shadow of a doubt, this meant more to those disciples in that moment. These are the men who Thursday night and Friday morning had abandoned the Lord. They have every reason to believe the relationship is shattered, broken, and ruined. After all, the Lord himself said, if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father. And did we not deny the Lord, brothers? They had abandoned him. The relationship is is fractured. At the very least, could you understand if they thought that Jesus might be coming with the whip to scold them. What's more than that, the last three days or so for them had been a living hell. Uh, All that they had hoped for, all that they had staked their lives upon was all ruined, all done when Jesus was taken into custody and brought to the cross. 
We had thought uh, the Messiah would come, he'd establish the kingdom of his father David, and he would rule on the throne of his father David for all the ages, and it turns out our rabbi, our Messiah, our Lord was something other than we thought he was, that no one anticipated that Jesus was going to rise from the dead. I know that because the disciples were not sitting outside the tomb on Sunday morning waiting for him to come out. No expectation. He's walking out of that tomb. We have every reason to believe in their hearts and minds these disciples are are knowing the greatest anguish of soul imaginable. Not just that their Lord is taken away, but that their lives have been wasted. All those promises that we had held on to and trusted in, where have they all gone now? You remember what Peter said in John 6. Where are we going to go, Lord? You alone have the words of eternal life, and we have come to believe that you are the Christ, the Holy One of God. Well, what do they think about that now? Well, we're, we're not told. But we can assume they were in a deep, dark night of the soul in these days and in these hours. So you can imagine how these words, peace be with you, must have landed on these men. Christ is risen. Maybe he's coming here to disown us and dissociate for us. They're still afraid for their very lives. They're locked behind closed doors. But here comes the Lord, and he says, shalom. He says, brothers, peace be with you. Then we read verse 20, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Perhaps all of this was just too good to be true. Maybe the disciples thought, we're seeing some sort of vision, some sort of apparition. Maybe this is just a dream. But Jesus says, no, no, no. Look at the wounds. This isn't some twin that has just shown up at the last minute or someone who looks a whole lot like Jesus or some hallucination, an apparition. The same body that went into that tomb with the nail-pierced hands and the spear-pierced side is the one who's standing in their midst. He says, you're not looking at any sort of vision here. See my hands, see my side. This is the real, historical, physical Jesus. The same Jesus who had died and now is risen again. There might be some greater significance to this. No doubt the existence of Jesus' wounds have inspired uh, encouragement and blessing for God's people for ages. It's inspired poets and hymn writers Some people might ask, what is the significance? Jesus rises from the dead. He's not covered in blood like he would have been on the cross, and yet he maintains these wounds. Why would his resurrected body have those wounds in his hands and in his side? Well, at the very least, it makes for wonderful hymnody. Five bleeding wounds he bears received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry, nor let that ransomed sinner die. Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me of its guilt and power. Crown him the Lord of love. Behold his hands and side. Rich wounds yet visible above in beauty glorified. What's more than that though, the reason Jesus, I think, bears these wounds and so eager to display these wounds is to show that he is the Lamb of God who has taken away the sins of the world. He is the one who has stood like a substitute and been slaughtered on behalf of his people. He still bears the wounds. Here's the proof that the same body that was crucified and went into the grave is the same body that walked out 
risen again. And it's not just here. That great eschatological vision of the Apostle John, same writer of this gospel, we believe, I saw between the elders and the throne a lamb standing as though it had been slain in beauty glorified. He bears those wounds in that vision of the Apostle John, saying for all eternity that by his blood he has ransomed a people for his own name, for his own glory. Saying for all eternity that I am the Christ who died and was risen again. And we have a foretaste of that here with these brothers behind those locked doors in that room. Well, then we read verse 20. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad they saw the Lord. At that moment, then they were glad they saw the Lord. Like it's the final, the final proof, the final word. Thomas is not there. We'll see next week. But he needed some evidence himself. But, but you know, Peter and John, they'd seen the empty tomb. They had heard the words from Mary. But it was just like, can this be? I don't want to, to be disappointed again. Can I put my hope in this? Can I trust? If he really is risen, this changes everything. I mean, it, it alters my whole understanding of the Old Testament Scriptures. Everything I was taught as a boy in school. All my understanding of who the Messiah would be. I'd have to relearn everything. And if he really has been risen, all of his promises are true. And they can never fail. Is it, is it true? And it's like at this moment when they see the Lord and they see the wounds. It's like they, there's a release. We can be happy. We can have joy. Then the disciples were glad they had saw the Lord, seen the Lord. Uh, Jesus had told them that this hour was going to come. He predicted this moment. Said in the upper room, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I'll find you. I'll meet you. I will, I will come to you. He said in John 16, verse 20, there in the upper room with his disciples, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful. What's he talking about? I would argue he's talking about the next three days, that, that they're going to be sorrowful. They're going to weep. They're going to experience anguish of soul as their Lord is taken and crucified and buried. But then he says, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. If you've been in the room for a delivery, or if you've delivered a baby yourself, you might know something of the tension, the anxiety, the birth is coming, the, the pain that's coming. All the more so for women of that day. They wouldn't have had access to an epidural, wouldn't have had access to many of the emergent forms of care that can be brought in in an especially uh, tense situation like that. You were very much in doubt as to whether or not the mother or the child would live. And, you know, maybe five times out of ten, six times out of ten, the child did not live. So many women died in childbirth. We live in an age where that's not as common. But, but the image is tension, anxiety, anguish, and all your mind is on the labor, the pain, and how's this going to go, and what's the outcome going to be? Are we safe? But Jesus says that's all going to be forgotten once the baby's born. The sorrow will turn to joy. Verse 22, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, 
and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. This text is fulfilled in John 20, verse 20. Then the disciples were glad they saw the Lord. Now they will have joy unspeakable forever. And all their lives and all their ministries will operate out of the framework of the joy that the resurrection brings. And that joy will never be taken away from them. That joy is hidden in a place where thieves can't break in and steal. And an impenetrable force Fortress of the the grace of God, the goodness of God, the sovereignty of God. Joy springs in this moment for these disciples, and it will never be taken away from them again. They will never have to know again any anxiety over whether or not the Lord's promises are true. They will never have to wonder again if they will have eternal life in Him. They will never have to be afraid ever again. I'm not saying that they never were afraid ever again. They will never have to be afraid again. This is true for you too, as one who has faith in the resurrected Son of God. You know this, right? There is never a good reason for a Christian to be afraid. We fear often. We fear all kinds of things. We doubt. We struggle. But we cannot supply to God a good reason why we should be afraid that our souls will fail, that we'll be lost and forgotten and be left as orphans. Jesus has provided proof after proof after proof to these men. And now this joy that they have, they will continue in for the rest of their lives into eternity. It will never be snatched away from them. Well, then we arrive at this great commission. And this is what I want to spend the rest of our time on this morning. All of that was introduction. Now we get to the commission, verses 21 through 23. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Every gospel account includes some form of what we refer to as the Great Commission. Luke 24, 44 through 49, Mark 16, 14 through 18, perhaps the most well-known is in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, Uh, even Acts, Acts 1, 4 through 8 includes the Great Commission. I think this is best understood as John's version of the Great Commission. Verse 21 is the heart of the commission, and that's what I want us to spend most of the rest of our time on this morning, and I'll just briefly mention 22 and 23 toward the end. Verse 21, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Very short statement from Jesus. What does it mean? What should we understand by that statement? By the way, I don't believe we're to understand that in some way This is unique to the disciples or something like that. I mean, certainly it worked itself out in unique ways in their lives and ministries, but I think it's completely appropriate to read ourselves into this text and say that the Lord Jesus commissions and sends all of his disciples. He sends his church into the world, and for the sake of time, I won't defend that this morning, but I'll just state that there. Well, I can tell you what this does not mean pretty clearly, does not mean 
that we as Christ's people, as his disciples, have the prerogative to do everything that Jesus did. Because people who want to go to John 20, verse 21, and say, well, look, as the Father has sent me, Jesus says, so I am sending you. So, so everything's fair game. If I see Jesus do it, I can do it. That's, that's not it at all. That's, that's a rather sophomoric reading of the text. Moreover, it's not licensed to say whatever Jesus said. We, we're not Jesus, and there were certain things the Son of God said that only the Son of God could say. There was a certain quality about His speech that caused onlookers to say, no man has ever spoken as this man, and no man ever will. We don't have the license to do everything Jesus did, say everything Jesus said. Moreover, we don't have the same authority that Jesus had. Jesus was God, is God, the Word made flesh, and there was a peculiar authority, a peculiar power that belonged only to him that we do not in any way share with him. That said, clearly there's some connection being drawn to the Father's sending of the Son, the manner in which he sends us. So positively, what does it mean? Uh, What can we conclude about our commission from the Lord Jesus as his people, his disciples as the church, based on John 20, 21? Well, actually not much from just this verse but a lot from the context of John's gospel, which I'm using to interpret the verse, okay? There are at least four things I think we can conclude, four, four main points now. What does John 20 verse 21 mean for disciples, for the church of the Lord Jesus? Number one, as the Son was the Father's ambassador in the world, so we are to be Christ's ambassadors in the world. As the Son was the Father's ambassador in the world, so we are to be Christ's ambassadors in the world. That's a simple enough point, right? Established in a number of places in the gospel, not just here. The Son was an ambassador sent from the Father. You children, do you know what that word ambassador means? Uh, uh, if, if, if you belong to a, a country and you're sent to another country to carry a word, a message, carry on some business or something like that, you could say, I'm an ambassador of the country I'm coming from. I'm a representative of the country that I'm coming from. We use that language sometimes talking about events and dialogue between nations. Christ was the Father's unique ambassador. He revealed the Father, represented the Father to His people. Well, the disciples of Jesus are called to represent Jesus to the world, as the Son represented the Father to the world. And that's what a Christian is. Christian is a little Christ, a Christ follower, a disciple of the Master, an ambassador of the Lord. You, Christian, are Christ's representative here on earth, a called out, appointed delegate, ambassador of the kingdom of God. Now, that's all good and nice to say. Sounds very impressive. But what are some of the primary ways in which disciples of Jesus are to represent Him to the world? But what are some of their functions as ambassadors, representatives of the kingdom of God and the person of Jesus Christ? Well, in John's gospel, we don't have to wonder what the answer is. Disciples represent Jesus by their love, particularly for one another. John 13, 34 through 35, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. 
The, the, the Christ mark in the life of the believer is this prevailing love that he or she has for other Christians, uh, others of God's people. How are they going to know you're a representative of Jesus? How are they going to know you're a follower of Christ? How are, you, how are they going to know you're the Lord's ambassador? Well, they'll know you're my disciples by the way you love one another. How much does that elevate the significance of our love and our unity with one another? This is, this is like the, the sine qua non of what it means to be a disciple. The thing without which you are not a disciple. It is the love that we bear toward one another. Furthermore, uh, they'll know that we're ambassadors of Christ by our obedience, our obedience to Christ, our submission to His commandments and His will. Jesus says, John 15, verses 8 through 10, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. The proof doesn't need to be made to God. He knows if you're a disciple or not. He can evaluate your heart before any fruit is produced. But to other Christians, to a watching world, how will you prove that you're a disciple, an ambassador of the risen Lord Jesus? You will prove it by bearing much fruit. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. A further way we fulfill our function as ambassadors of Christ is by our unity as God's people. John 17, 22, Jesus prays to his Father, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I and them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. There's a unity that the Son bore with the Father. You knew those two were united and connected, that in some way this one was a delegate sent from the Father. Well, similarly, we're to have unity with one another and unity with Christ, and that is to show that we are representatives, ambassadors of the Lord Jesus Christ. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. As the Father sent me to be his ambassador, his representative, I send you, my disciples, to be my ambassadors in the world. All right, number two, second meaning I think we can find in this word, this commission from the Lord Jesus. Number two, as the Son came not to do His own will, but the will of the one who sent Him, we too are to do the will of the one who sends us. As the Son came not to do His own will, but the will of the one who sent Him, we too are to do the will of the one who sends us. Jesus said to His disciples in John 4, my food is to do the will of my Father. My food is to do the will of the one who sent me and to accomplish his work. That's like food to me. And so for us, as the Lord's disciples, our food is to do the will of the Lord Jesus. For the devoted and eager disciple, the Lord's will is his delight. I'll say that again. For the devoted and eager disciple, the Lord's will is his delight. We say with Peter, you alone have the words of eternal life. We depend on those words. We cling to those words. We feed on those words. We hide those words in our heart. We seek to live out those words. You alone have the words of eternal life, and I'm going to give attention to those words. We love his teachings. We love his commandments. 
As a devoted and eager disciple and ambassador of the Lord, our posture should be, I want to know what the will of my Savior is. What's his will? And I want to please him. I I want him to be honored by my adherence to his will. Even to those aspects of his will, to those commandments that may not exactly make sense to us. Even those commandments that might seem a little bit impractical. The question is not, do I like the command that Christ has given to me? It's never been the question. Is it practical for my life circumstances to follow this teaching of the... Do you think it was practical for the Son of God to give himself up like a lamb before its shearers is silent and to go to the cross? He suspended his will. He said, Father, I'll take the cup that you've, you've given to me. Oh, we don't ha- the Lord does not have to supply a reason for us in order for us to follow his commands. It, we often do this, right? Well, the Bible is not positive about debt. Well, you don't have to be a Christian to know that. Debt's not great. If you have debt, that's a problem. And, and so the Lord says that, sure, I, I, I'll try not to go into debt. But then there are other aspects that maybe seem a little more impractical for us. Why would the Lord ask me to remain in a marriage that makes me unhappy? What's the point of all that? I'm so unhappy. I don't want to be married to this person. It's not going to hurt anybody, really, is it? At the end of the day, we don't really love each other. And yet we know that the Lord doesn't take pleasure in divorce. You know, I feel personally attracted to someone of the same sex. What's the big deal? What's the big deal at the end of the day? Why would the Lord want me not to pursue this avenue of self-realization and self-gratification? Listen, the Lord does not need to supply a reason Now, in those two cases, reasons can be supplied, I think. But the point is this. The question is not, does the Lord's will cohere with what I want to do with my life? It's I love the Lord. I'm his disciple. I'm his follower. More than that, he has sent me, commissioned me. As his father sent him, so he has sent me. And and my life, my world revolves around his will. What will be pleasing to him? Listen, the Lord Jesus could tell us to stand in the corner for an hour a day. What would you do if that was there in his revealed will? Stand in the corner. I don't need a good reason for that. Does this please my Lord? Does honor him? Where's the nearest corner? I'm being a little bit silly, but you get the point. The question is not, how can my will and the Lord's align? It's what is the Lord's will, and that I will pursue. That is my delight, as it was the son's food to do the will of his father, even when it was painful to him, even when it cost him. So we're eager to do the will of the Lord Jesus who sends us. Number three, I have to move more quickly here. As the son lived and worked in constant communion with his father, we too are to live and work in constant communion with Christ. As the Son lived and worked in constant communion with His Father, we too are to live and work in constant communion with Christ. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. 
The son lived in constant communion with his father, and he worked out of the framework of his communion with his father. So we too live and work out of the framework of our communion with Christ. John 15, verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Jesus' mission, his obedience to the Father, his submission to his Father's will, was always carried out in the context of communion with the Father. So, Our mission, our calling, our obedience to Christ, our submission to His will is always carried out in the context and the actual experience of communion with Him and with the Father. Now, number four. Number four. And this, I think, gets at the content of the mission itself. As Christ's mission was to go to the world in order to accomplish salvation. As Christ's mission was to go to the world in order to accomplish salvation, so we go to the world to proclaim salvation in Jesus' name. Sent to do what? I think it's legitimate to ask, what was the Son sent for? Father sent the Son to the world in order to accomplish salvation, so we go to the world to proclaim salvation in Jesus' name. It was said of Jesus, John 1, 29, he was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Sent as a sacrificial lamb to take away the sins of the world. The Samaritans concluded in John 4, verse 42, this is indeed the Savior of the world. Probably the clearest statement of Jesus' mission is a very familiar passage, John 3, verse 16. God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Why did the Father send the Son? He didn't send Him into the world to condemn the world. The world stood under condemnation already. John goes on to say that at the end of John 3. He didn't send him into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So that individuals within the world who put their faith and trust in him and believe upon him will be saved unto eternal life. That's the mission of the Son, born out of the love of the Father for the world, that created order an act of rebellion against God. He sends his Son on a rescue mission to save sinners. And so he's called in John 8, 12, the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. In John 9, verse 5, he says, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Believe on Jesus, you will not remain in darkness, but will have the light of life. But then Jesus says, in prayer to his Father in John 17, Verse 11, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. Father, I am coming to you. Verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. Verse 18 of John 17, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Well, Jesus came 
to accomplish salvation for sinners in the world who will turn to him as the light of the world and believe on him unto eternal life. Jesus says, I'm going out of the world, but I'm leaving them in the world. For what purpose? What's our mission? I submit to you the mission of the church in the world, the mission of eager and devoted disciples of the Lord Jesus, is to proclaim salvation in Jesus' name to the world. Brothers and sisters, our mission is to the world. We go to the world with a message for the world. As it was Jesus' mission to come to the world, to speak to the world, to save the world, so we go into the world bearing his message of salvation, that the light of the world has come so that whoever believes in him will no longer walk in darkness but have everlasting life. That the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world has been offered up as a substitute, as a sacrifice for all those who would believe on him, including you if you'll turn from your sin and believe upon the Lord Jesus unto salvation. Jesus does not, listen, Jesus does not keep us in the world simply to hold out until he comes back. He doesn't say, y'all huddle together, hold on to each other, and hang tight, and wait until I come. That's not his commission. That's not the word he leaves his disciples with. He wants us in the world. We are sent we're commissioned, we're to go to the world, and we're to bear the news to every land, we're to climb the steeps and cross the waves. Onward is our Lord's command, Jesus saves, Jesus saves. We're called by Christ to take it to the world, to go into the highways and into the byways and to compel them to come in. As the Father has sent the Son, so He sends us into the world to proclaim salvation in Jesus' name. Don't allow yourself or your church to become a holdout of frozen souls waiting for the Lord to come back. We cannot allow that to happen as a local church. Charles Spurgeon said, the church was meant from the first to be aggressive. Church is on offense. Jesus doesn't say, go behind locked doors and hide and wait. I'll be back in a few thousand years. He says, go. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. Go, make disciples of all the nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And his promise is sure that he's with us always, even unto the end of the age. The commission is given to us and attached to it is this promise. The Lord will be with us even as we are sent. So a very simple and obvious application is that a large part of the church's mission is the proclamation of the gospel unto the salvation of sinners, the spread of the kingdom of God throughout the world. And so it becomes part of the individual mission of the disciple. In our own spheres, in our own ways, let us be up and doing for Christ about his work and about his commission. He sends us as believers, he sends us as his church to carry on his work in the world. And as Christ's mission brought him to the world, brothers and sisters, we are sent by Christ to the world. We are called to make disciples. We are called to baptize them. We are called to teach them everything that Christ has taught us and his promise is that he will be with us until the end of the age. There's two more verses and I'm about out of time. <laughs> 
After these words from Jesus, he says, verse 22, when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. I'll just say about that. I mean, some people will wonder, I thought the Holy Spirit comes in Acts 2, Pentecost, or Acts 1, excuse me. And, and, and here, though, Jesus is still with them. He says, receive the Holy Spirit. I don't think temporal, chronological concerns are at the heart of this text. This is, this is like an acted-out parable. Receive the Holy Spirit. For this commission, you're going to have the Holy Spirit. I, I don't think it's much more than that. What's more significant is that the Holy Spirit himself is once again associated with the person of Jesus. Remember, the Holy Spirit's mission, his purpose, is to mediate to the believer the presence and power of the risen Lord Jesus. And here the Holy Spirit is associated with the breath of, the breath of Jesus. He's breathing on them. The, the breath of God, the Holy Spirit, the presence of Christ, he will be with you. And then verse 23, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. The disciples know, okay, that no one can forgive sins but God. This is not priestly absolution, that the pastor or the priest or whatever put his hand on you, recite some verse over you, and I now absolve you of your sins. That's not what this is. That happened to me once in uh, High Anglican service, actually at Westminster Abbey. I was absolved of my sins by the priest. Well, I am forgiven my sins. It has nothing to do with the hocus-pocus that that guy did. It has to do with the once-for-all offering of the Lord Jesus on the cross. Thank you very much. This is not Jesus saying that, that, that forgiveness is a matter of us forgiving people. I understand this to mean that Jesus is authorizing his disciples to proclaim the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. So on the authority of Jesus, based on what the Lord has done, Peter can say things like what he will say in Acts 2 verse 38, as those men who listened to him were cut to the heart and they asked, what must we do to be saved? He says, repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. You can be forgiven, I pronounce you forgiven if you believe the gospel and trust in Jesus Christ. This text would authorize the Apostle Paul, for example, to say, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Where do you get off saying that, Paul? Well, the Lord Jesus did say, did he not? In John 20, verse 23, that if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. This is license to preach the gospel. This is license to announce the forgiveness of sins. God himself has made a way that all who trust in him today will find healing in his sacrifice, can be saved from their sins. And I very much believe, not just as a pastor, but as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, I am authorized on the basis of what the Lord Jesus has done to assure you that if you put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, believing that he died as the Lamb of God, taking away the sins of the world, taking away your sins, that God raised him from the dead. If you trust in him, turning from sin, you will be saved. You will have the forgiveness of sins. We are authorized in Jesus' name to proclaim this message, that there is salvation to be found in Jesus. I look forward in a few moments to hearing Analia, Annalena and Ian testify about the forgiveness they've found 
in Christ. I'd like to close in prayer, and then we'll sing, and then we'll transition to our time of testimony. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we recognize that this commission you have given to your church, this, this sending, is such an awesome thing for you to say that as the Father sent you, so we are sent by you. It's just so great and awesome a thing. And it would cause us to tremble. How can we be your ambassadors? How can we represent your will and your gospel? to the world around us, we would be so afraid if it were not for the resources that we have in your Spirit who is with us, if it were not for the power that you alone supply, if it were not for your Word that authorizes us to preach salvation in Jesus' name, to preach the forgiveness of sins. We pray, Father, that you would make us as individual believers and as a church family to be faithful to the commission that you have given to us. We pray, Father, that we would in truth represent you to a watching world, that people would see in our manner of life and in words that we say and the deeds that we do something of the character and person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, in our submission to your will, our attentiveness to your will, our delight in your will, people would see that we are indeed your people. We pray, Father, that you would give to each one of us a rich communion with the Lord Jesus as you shared communion with your Father, so grant us communion with you. And Father, we pray that they would see in our mission to the world something of the mission of the Lord Jesus. Thank you for sending your Son into the world, not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. As your ambassadors, your disciples, your sent out ones. Help us to proclaim that message with faithfulness and unto greater fruitfulness. We pray together in Jesus' name, amen.